John 19, lesson 38. This is going to be, uh, I'm not going to uh, go by this verse by verse. Uh, I'm going to, what I'm going to focus on are the prophecies of the, of the crucifixion and the sayings of Jesus on the cross. I'm not going to look at every intimate detail of Pilate's cross-examination of Jesus. I will mention a few things about it. You can read this. There's not a really lot, a lot to exegete. In uh, John chapter 19, you're very familiar with the story. You're familiar with the suffering of Jesus. You've read it a hundred times, a thousand times. So I'm not going to go over every verb or every word in this. But we are going to read it. And then I'm going to really focus on the Scripture fulfillment that you can actively uh, share truth with people and, and, and be confident that, that Jesus is a fulfillment of Scripture and that this has always been planned and that Scripture is united in its unity and its harmony and there's no, uh, uh, dis- there's no uh, error in the Scripture and it is, uh, uh, it's laid out perfectly and comprehensively. So, uh, we're going to look at this. Let's read chapter 19, and then, uh, and then we're, actually, there's only three sayings from Jesus on the cross in John. There's one saying in Matthew, that'll be four, and then there's three, uh, in, uh, Matthew. We're going to look at all seven of them. Seven is a number of completeness. The seven sayings of Jesus are going to comprehensively once and for all, dovetail with the reason why he came, that he's deity, that he's God. He came to save his people, that he's a he's a fulfiller of the prophecies. He came to fulfill all the law and the prophets. Jesus said, I came to fulfill all the law, and not one T is going to not be crossed, or not one I is not going to be dotted. I'm going to fulfill it all. And some of the things he, he talks about, his mother fulfills the Old Testament, and then all the things he says completely summarizes the purpose from which he came, and that's the last thing he spoke of uh, to the public. Uh, so uh, we'll look at that in good detail. So let's read this. And uh, uh, Austin, why don't you read uh, 1 through 10? Melanie, you'll go 11 through 20. Uh, Valerie, if you'll go uh, 20 through 30. Uh, uh, Val, if you'll go 30 through 40. And then 30 through 42, and let's just read this real quickly, and then I'm going to pick up some of the major prophecies, and uh, there may be one or two that we can add that uh, then we can talk about. So feel free, son, start it. Beautiful. Just good timing. So we're going to look at these prophecies regarding the crucifixion, uh, and... Uh, to give us further increase our trust and dependence on Him, and understanding that the Bible is is uh, to believe is given by inspiration of God. There's no errors in it, so we can with confidence declare truth. First of all, you, the first prophecy about Jesus found out in the scourging. Uh, the scourging was a horrific thing uh, that the Romans were famous for. It was a it was a means of intense suffering in person and personal pain, and it was designed to inflict the most pain on a person. And oftentimes the person who was being scourged or flogged died from this. Uh, if you're familiar with this at all, there was a whip on the leather whip and on the ends of the leather whip was metal or bone fragment, and they were sharp, and they would be flailed on this person's back, and this back uh, would 
would open up with deep, thick cur- uh, furrows as the, Holy, as the Holy Spirit designed the Old Testament to describe it. And so the back was opened up. Uh, if you can just imagine that, the suffering, the intense bleeding, uh, just a horrific way to suffer. And so, and so the Jews had a law. How many times could you scourge someone? Thirty-nine times. And that was a merciful rule because they found, I guess, by trial and error, that if you go over 39, the person dies. And so we don't want the person to die, but we want to inflict this suffering on him so he would remember his crime or his sin and be reminded of the consequences of it. So Paul said, I was flogged. 39 times, many times, and we read that in 2 Corinthians. So, was scourging is not a, was not just a, uh, a, a, a means of execution by the Romans. Uh, other cultures and other nations did it, but the, but the Romans were infamous for it and they did it uh, quite often. It was part of their torture. So when Jesus was scourged, uh, the Bible mercifully just doesn't describe it. But if any of you, uh, not a Hollywood guy uh, as far as a uh, uh, Bible and uh, in, in interpreting Bible, but uh, Mel Brooks, I mean Mel Brooks, Mel Gibson uh, in The uh, Passion of Christ did a pretty good job of showing the suffering of Jesus when he was scourged. And uh, like I said, and that was a horrific thing. So Jesus was scourged and he was beaten. And uh, uh, one of the, the Psalms that have always been uh, uh, intriguing to me uh, look at Psalms 129. You not be, might not be aware of this psalm. This psalm uh, uh, is about affliction and suffering, and it applies to uh, the nation of Israel. It 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 uh, it, uh, it describes individual suffering as Christians, a body of Christ. And then, verse 3, the Holy Spirit takes the metaphor of plowers plowing the field. Have you all driven down the road and seen uh, 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 fields that have been plowed? You got the little, uh, you got the, uh, it looks like a little furrowed slope. And then, so those are the, the plows uh, and the furrows that have been put in the ground. And then, of course, seed is planted. And, of course, whatever springs up from those seeds. But the Holy Spirit uses a very uh, intriguing uh, understanding. Look at Psalm uh, 129, many a time they've afflicted me from my youth. Let Israel now say. So it's a picture of the suffering of Israel from uh, from the days of Egypt to the Holocaust uh, to the day. The nation of Israel has suffered in part of consequence of their rejection of Christ. But uh, So Israel has suffered. Many a time they've afflicted me from my youth, yet they have not prevailed against me. We understand what that means, that God is going to eventually save His people, and they are going to be brought back and restored. I'm not going to reiterate what Terry said today. But... Uh, Look at verse 3. This is what the Holy Spirit takes, this analogy of farming and this metaphor, and that uh, many great scholars have used this to uh, applicate, to apply to Jesus Christ. The plowers plowed on my back. They made their furrows long. The Lord, He's righteous. He's cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. So the Lord in His righteousness and His holiness allowed His Son to be scourged and be beaten and to be despised and have His visage marred more than any other man because He's a righteous and His holy God. And He allowed His Son 
to absorb the wrath as they, as, as, as the Father poured out His wrath on His Son as a judgment against the sins of His people. So all this is a beautiful metaphor for the fact that Jesus had His back plowed by the plowers. The plowers are the wicked. The plowers, if you want to apply that specifically, are the, are the Romans and the nation of Israel, the leaders who uh, were... Uh, for this and who actually broke the law by actually, uh, uh, I think it's, it's very interesting. They, uh, when they allowed Barabbas to be the substitute for Jesus, that's a great picture of Jesus' substitutionary work. How he who knew no sin became sin for us. So Barabbas, who was due the sin, he got off and Jesus, who was not due the sin, he took the sin. So that's another picture of the work of Christ on the cross. But this psalm has just uh, always meant something to me. And he's cut in pieces the cords of the wicked. The wicked thought that they were finally getting rid of Jesus. They were destroying his work and his ministry. The Pharisees and the Sadducees thought, hey, finally, we're going to have uh, reign again. We're not going to be threatened by this uh, newcomer who's blasphemer who claims to be God. And even in that, God is cut in pieces their intentions, and He has won victory through the cross. They never understood that. But He accomplished victory, and He cut in pieces these plowers in their bad intentions, and He overcame them. So uh, uh, I think that's one important verse that helps us understand that the scourging and the the uh, the uh, suffering of Jesus was predetermined, and it was prophetic. Uh, of course, we're familiar with uh, Isaiah 53, but it really starts in chapter uh, 52. So if turn with me to Isaiah 52, and uh, just put a finger on this text. Also, you're going to put a finger on Psalm 22, which Terry read today, and then a psalm, you may put a finger or a bookmarker in Psalm 69. Uh, all of these are messianic psalms that are going to be useful uh, uh, about these prophecies regarding Jesus. So turn with me to Isaiah uh, 56 is my first one. I apologize for that. 56. This is about the uh, pre-crucifixion suffering, a part of the scourging, of course. Actually, before even the scourging began, he's uh, humiliated. Look at 56. Uh, this is a surf, surf, servant song of Isaiah. This is the third one. Uh, if you're familiar with this in Isaiah, but the, the third servant song, which begins in verse four. And it goes through verse 11. But look at verse 6. I gave my back to those who struck me, prophecy of the scourging, and my cheeks to those who literally pulled out my beard and, and pulled the hair out of his beard. 50 verse 6. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. So the creator of all men allowed man, the son of God, the creator of all men, allowed his creation to humiliate him, to pull out the hairs of his face, to scourge him in his back as an atonement for their sins. That's Isaiah 50, verse 6. 50, verse 6. The Lord, I gave my back to those who struck me, my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard, and I did not hide my face. We say hallelujah to that, that our Savior would have done that for us out of His love for us. And if you turn uh, to uh, 52, 14, same book of Isaiah. I've already. This is servant song number 4 in Isaiah. It's the most famous of the servant songs. It's the one that the Jewish people do not get taught. The uh, the uh, if you look at uh, the history of 
the nation of Israel. The Jewish sages and the leaders don't teach this verse providentially. Uh, and we could get into that, but we won't. But 52.14, just as many were astonished at you, talking about Jesus, my servant, in verse 13, so his visage, his face, his profile, the way he looks, his eyes, his cheekbones, everything about him, his visage was marred more than any other man, and his form more than the sons of men. He was a wreck. He was swollen, and he was beaten to a pulp. He was unrecognizable in his face. And I'll let you picture that. But Jesus suffered the afflictions of the cross as he loved us, and he suffered. So we see that in in 52.14. And then if you want to turn to the famous text in 53, we see that in verse 5 and verse 8. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was on Him, and by His stripes, literally blows that cut in. That word, you know, we think of stripes as a little red mark. That word stripes in the Hebrew means blows that cut in, which would dovetail perfectly with what a scourging is. Actual literal openings in the flesh, lines in the flesh, were the cutting of the bone and the metal from the uh, from the uh, whip would do. So literally, Scripture, His stripes, the blows that cut in, we are healed by that stripe. And so we see the blessedness of our Savior who did that for us. And then in verse 8, it sums up, He was taken from prison and from judgment, and He was, He will declare His generation, He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people, he was stricken. So why did Jesus come? He came to die, and he came to die to save his people from their sins. That's the only way it could have occurred. That was in God's providential plan that he would have sent his son uh, to show the seriousness of sin, the consequences of sin, and the only source of salvation from sin is the only Son of God, uh, the perfect lamb. So we see the scourging predicted. The crucifixion, the, the crucifixion itself was predicted. And I want us to go to that Old Testament that we may not be familiar with from our testing. Numbers 9.18. And in the Scriptures, the Old, in the Old Testament, there are types of Christ. A type is, an, is, a, is going to be a, a symbol. It's going to be a, an English reference. It's going to be a metaphor, a symbol. It's going to be a picture that points to something that's going to happen in the future. And so we see in Numbers 12, verse 9, that the people of Israel have rejected God. They've sinned against God. And because they've sinned against God, God has sent serpents to bite them. So they are in great distress. They cannot get out of their distress. This is a picture of what? But what is the, that is right, but what is the, the picture of the mess that they can't get out of? They can't get out of their, they're getting bit and they're dying. What's that a picture of? Our sins and our inabilities, our hopelessness, the way we are. There's no remedy to our predicament. If it's not for Christ, we, the wages of sin is death. So we see this picture. And so what happens? God tells Moses to lift up a serpent, the serpent that's biting them, put it on a pole, and you look at that pole, 
You are saved from the biting of the snakes. What is that picture of, Val? Grace. We, Jesus is lifted up. So Moses lifted up the servant in the wilderness, so Jesus is lifted up. So when you look to Jesus lifted up, He is the only means of remedy and the salvation from the sin that plagues you, right? So all of these old... A lot of people, when they read the Old Testament, it's like, what is that? Why? And we have to understand that everything in the Old Testament points to and is important because it points to Jesus. When you're reading about the curtains in Leviticus, and you're going, why the heck do we got to know what all these colors are? When you're talking about the purple curtains in the tabernacle, and you talk about the purple robe that's on Jesus' back, you understand that's deity, and that's majesty, and the purple curtains in the tabernacle point to the purple robe on Jesus. That's God. That's king. That's majesty, okay? And those purple curtains, this is extra bonus today, the purple curtains represent the purple robes that represented Jesus, that he was king, right? Say you understand this, yes. That's wasted valuable breath. There we go. Everything is important. Everything points to Jesus. Talk about the mercy seat. When you talk about all this stuff, have a view that this is important. All scriptures God breathed. It's, it's, and it's for our study and instruction in righteousness. It's not just some 2,000 year old thing, out of date thing. When the, when the nation of Israel can't eat this, they can't eat, they can't eat things that don't have hooves and don't chew. Well, that's interesting and fine, but the point is there's got to be a difference between God's people and the world, right? And there's a, and there's, and God has a, as a point in everything He does, and we're, our bodies are the temple of God, and and we need to be separate, and we need to take care of these vessels, and so everything when you read it, there's a reason for it, and it's hard to read it, and it doesn't apply, and your mind wanders, and you're going, I got to read this today just to get through my Bible, right, Val? But it's not, yes, ma'am. That's right. It's all, it all fits together. So the Old Testament, the New Testament interprets the Old Testament. So the point of numbers is not that they were getting by snakes, bit by snakes, but that they had to look to a remedy and that remedy was the, was the snake on the brazen pole. And that is the picture of Jesus being lifted up on the cross. So that is the prophecy fulfilled. And Jesus kept saying, remember we went over this three weeks ago? If I be lifted up, if I be lifted up, if I be lifted up. Jesus knew. When we talked about the, the Jews couldn't, couldn't condemn him because they would have stoned him, that wouldn't have fulfilled scripture, right? So he had to be hung up on a cross. He had to be lifted up. And so the Romans had to do it. We talked about all that. That's all the fullness of time. That's how it all fits together. Who could imagine this? God did it, right? So we understand it's all inspired by God. It's perfectly fits together. And so the crucifixion itself is Terry read. Psalm 22 is what we call a messianic psalm. And not every verse in the psalm is referring to Jesus. And when you're reading these things and you're going, uh, what does this mean? Uh, think ahead, because a lot of it may be messianic. 
And David could be writing it. It could apply to him personally, and usually it does. It's a literal writing, but it also, Scripture also looks ahead two, three, and four steps and has eternal significance when it reads, and when it reads. So, so when we see this Psalm 22, excuse me, we understand that this is messianic. So when we get into the sayings of Jesus, I want you to keep your finger on this one because we know that this refers to Messiah. But this crucifixion, look at verse 14. This specifically describes the crucifixion. Any of you know anything about crucifixion, which we couldn't by experience, but we have to have read it. But he says, I am poured out like water, and my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It is melted within me. My strength is dried up like a pot sheared, and my tongue clears, clings to my jaws. You've brought me to the dust of death. This is, describes the suffering of the cross. That you eventually die because you strangle yourself in your own, you, you asphyxiate and you, you can't get air as you're held up, uh, by these nails that are in your wrist to, to preserve yourself and to breathe. You keep trying to push up, uh, with the, from the cross and you, you suffocate and it's a brutal way to die. But this description, I'm poured out like water, speaks of the dehydration. Usually they stayed up there for days. They didn't die, and it wasn't a, uh, a, a lethal injection where they die instantly. They stayed up there for days, and so that's why they had to break their legs. Uh, and that was a merciful thing, because once they broke their legs, they would die easier because they couldn't lift themselves up, and they couldn't get oxygen in their lungs, so they would die faster. Okay, so that's the cruelness of this. It's a cruel way to die, but this Jesus, uh, the description of it, that's why it's so ahead of its time, because it's before it was a prevalent thing, and who would have known what this is? But the Holy Scriptures defines it, even not only defines it, but tells you what goes on during the suffering. And so we see that uh, defined in Psalm 22. And then if you you pump over to uh, to 69 Psalm, this is another messianic Psalm. And this also describes the crucifixion on the cross and, and the sufferings of the cross. Uh, now, what, what I mentioned earlier, when, when these are messianic psalms, that doesn't mean that every verse applies to the Messiah, because when you read a verse like this, and let me just give you an illustration. Verse 5. Now, this is a psalm of David. It's a messianic psalm. It ultimately points to Jesus, but not every verse is about Jesus. And how do I know this? Look at verse 5. David writing this, Oh God, you know my foolishness and my sins are not hidden from you. You know that's not messianic, right? Because Jesus never sinned. There's no foolishness in him, but David was foolish and he sinned all the time. So as you read this, it's still messianic because look at verse 4, those who hate me without a cause are more than the hairs of my head. Uh, so Jesus, David was hated. He was mis, he was uh, hated and hounded by his enemies all his life and so was Jesus. But uh, look at the end of verse 4. Though I have stolen nothing, still I must repay it. That is messianic and that is pictures of mess. That's the substitutionary atonement. I'm going to drink this cup of God's wrath, although I myself have not contributed to the cup. You know what I'm saying? So when we read these Psalms, 
We understand, uh, for example, this is messianic, but not every verse is about Jesus. So we understand that. But verse 7, for your sake, I have borne reproach. So Jesus is bearing the reproach of the sins for his people on his own innocent back. And he's doing that because God uh, has, uh, has sent him to do this. And so he is uh, satisfying the rage of God against the sins of, our, of us. And then uh, we know these verses. Look at verse 14. Deliver me out of the mire. That's a metaphor for the cross. And let me not sink. Let me be delivered from those who hate me. And out of the deep waters, not let the floodwaters overflow me. And then I look at verse 20. I look for someone to take pity, but there's nobody. Everybody's gone except for a few ladies and John the Apostle. Everybody else is scrambled. There's a few people to the bloody end, literally. They're at the cross and they're watching him die. But he says, I look for someone to take pity. There's no one for comforts, but I found none. And they gave me gall for my food. And for my thirst, they gave me vinegar to drink. That literally happened at the cross. That is a, that is a, a verbiage that is a psalm that talks about the literal crucifixion itself. Time flies. Good grief. <clears throat> Everybody understand that? Another prophecy, and go back to Psalm 22. The soldiers did something incredible, and you would think, why did they do it? Well, they did it because it fulfilled Scripture. And that's the only explanation I have. This wasn't a common trait. This wasn't something all the the soldiers did. But if you uh, put one finger in John 19, uh, we're in verse 24. I don't mean to go too fast, but I always do. 1924, this is the disciples, I mean the, the soldiers. 1923, the soldiers, when they crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart in the tunic. Now, the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. I could go into the Old Testament description of that, the importance of that in the tabernacle itself. I won't because of time. But I could. But all this is important. Every detail is scripted and is prophetic. They said among themselves, let us not tear it, but let us cast lots for this. Lots for this. Whose it will be that the scripture might be fulfilled. That's why they did it. That the scripture, it came to their head. Wow, let's tear his lots and, and divide it up. It wasn't a common practice, Right? They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lot. Therefore the soldier did these things, and look what happened. A thousand years earlier, the Bible says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. If that doesn't encourage you to believe that the gospel is true, it is prophetic, it is literal fulfillment of the whole scriptures, then maybe we could talk after... After the class, dividing the garments, prophetic. The sponge with the sour wine, very, very neat and important. In John, these, you remember John is not a synoptic. It's, it's a little different, a little different viewpoint than the other three synoptics, Matthew, Mark, and Luke. In John, we see this, and that's going to be found in verse 29. We see, and this is 
as Jesus is about to die. Look at verse 29. Now, a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it in hyssop, and put it to his mouth. This is not... Uh, if you want to put in your notes beside this, I didn't go into any detail. This is not, this sponge with the sour wine, this is not an act of love. It's not an act of love, and it's not, of, it's not an act of, uh, of, of, of uh, tenderness. They're not giving Jesus this sponge of wine uh, uh, out of the goodness of their hearts. This wine was so fermented with vinegar, it was undrinkable, it was nasty, but it had the effect of being like a, like a, uh, what do you stick under somebody's nose when they passed out? And you... Ammonia, but it's a, smelling salts, there we go. It just jolts into your senses. That's what this was designed for, and it was cruel because once you're jolted to your senses, your prolonged suffering goes on longer. So they weren't doing that because Jesus was thirsty and they were just helping him out. They were mocking him. And they were, in, they were lengthening his suffering by temporarily reviving him with his nasty, revolting vinegar water. Now, it is interesting. He took that. Because he was willing to go as long until he committed his spirit to the Lord, right? But in, if we read in Mark and Matthew, if you'll look back at Matthew 15, uh, Mark 15, 13, this is, this happens before he's about to die. And it's also recorded in Matthew 27, if you want to peruse that, uh, uh, look at that. Uh, Mark 15, 23. This is a different, uh, drink, and this is earlier on in the suffering, 1523, uh, uh, 1523, they gave him wine mingled with myrrh to drink, but he didn't take that. Myrrh is a pain number. So they offered him that to numb the pain, but he didn't take that. And you can chew on that a while. He would take something that would extend his suffering, but he wouldn't take something to numb the pain. Why? Fulfill prophecy, that's what he came for, to die. He came to represent men, right? To, to understand and empathize with everything they went through. Their suffering. He did not neglect any of, he didn't take a, uh, a pill, uh, and, uh, and help him cope with depression and despair and trouble. Sorry, psychologist. No pill. What are some of the wonderful pills we take? Ambi. I'm not. What? What are some of the wonderful pills we take to make everything wonderful? Xanax and whatever else. And if, just because you know it, don't mean you're on it right now. But this. The point of this is Jesus did not take this because he wanted to experience in totality this suffering. Wow. So he didn't take the pain number, the myrrh, but he did take the extend the pain 
nasty vinegar water at the end. But that was prophesied in the Scripture, and we see that in two places. If you're still in your Psalms, we're still in Psalm 22. Uh, we see that literally. This is not accidental. This is amazing. This should make this should excite you that that God would go to this depth of trouble so that you would understand and have faith to apprehend this. Uh, 22, uh, 15, I've read it already. Uh, my tongue is dried up like a pot sheared and my tongue clings to my jaws. That's thirst. That's dehydration. That is about to go into Nana land. You're about to pass out from the pain and you're dehydrated. And we see that specifically in Psalm 69, verse 21, where it literally tells us this exact same verbiage, exact, exact same 50, uh, 69, they gave me gall for my food and for my thirst they gave me vinegar to drink. That's exactly what it says in John 19, uh, that we just read. John 19, 29. 21 and 29. Is it 29 or 21? 21. I don't want to be inaccurate here. 29, uh, so he's thirsty, and they give it to him, verse 29, and then verse, yeah, so it's, uh, yeah, so it's, tw- it's 19.29. In Psalms, it's 21. Thank you, dear. 69.21. No breaking of the legs. Very important. This is going to help us with understanding the Old Testament. Passover. What happens at Passover. What is offered? The blood is put around the doorpost of the death angel is going to pass over and the nation of Israel, those who put the blood over the doorpost is going to be saved from the death angel that's floating around killing everybody. So the Passover commemorates redemption from sin, redemption from slavery, and it is the blood that redeems, the blood that ransoms, the blood that makes the difference, right? So we understand this lamb, that Jesus is the Passover lamb. He's the lamb that's unblemished. So why no breaking of the legs? Perfect sacrifice. Fulfillment of Scripture. If you look at these Scriptures, uh, this is Exodus. I think your notes may say Ezekiel. E-Z. Uh, I didn't catch that one. Uh, but if you look at Exodus 12, uh, we not to break the legs because that would be a blemish. That wouldn't be a perfect sacrifice. And so Jesus' legs were not broken. That is fulfillment of Scripture, and that's in Exodus 12:46. We see this. 12.46, in one house, this is about the Passover regulation, Exodus 12.46, Genesis, Exodus. In one house of it, it will be eaten. You shall not carry out the flesh outside the house, nor shall you break one of its bones. So, and that is a requirement. It's also in Numbers that the legs were not broken because the lamb had to be perfect and without blemish. And if you broke a leg, you would alleviate and you would quicken the death. So Jesus, they broke the other two guys' legs, right? But they didn't break Jesus' legs because that would not be a perfect sacrifice. That would be a blemish, and that would be unacceptable to God as perfect, right? 
Amazing stuff. Prophesied in Scripture, fulfilled literally on the cross. Psalm 34.20. It seems like this is just sort of in the middle of nowhere. And I've read this a thousand times. Uh, but... Uh, 3420, he guards all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Talking about how God protects his people, and in the middle of that, there's a prophecy, 3420, he guards all of his bones, not one of them is broken. Fulfillment of Scripture, Jesus' legs were not broken, but he hung on that cross for the enduring until he voluntarily, when it was time, he gave up the Spirit. He wasn't taken from it, he gave it up. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Uh, uh, pierced his side. We understand that. That was the evidence that he was really dead. I'm not a doctor, uh, but my understanding of that, when the blood, the water flows out, that's a picture that the heart is dead, no longer working, and the heart is stopped, and there's accumulation of body fluids. And when he's pierced in the side, the soldier did that in verse. Uh, pierced in the side, verse 34. Uh, one of the soldiers pierced his side, and immediately blood and water flowed out. Remember when we were doing John, we talked about blood and water, the evidence of the humanity of Christ, and we recognize that he is man, he's fully God, fully man. And so this is a picture that he really died, completely dead, and it is a fulfill of Scripture. This is one of the most fascinating Scriptures and this dovetails in what Terry talked about today. The nation of Israel will all be saved. You can debate whether every single one, or you can debate whether it's the elect, uh, not for today. But Zechariah 12.10, we've read this, we've talked about this. It says, they will look upon him they pierce. When Jesus returns... At the second coming, after the battle of Armageddon, he, he, he puts his feet on Mount Olives. Where he ascended from, he comes back to the same place, and the nation of Israel looks at him, whom they've pierced, Scripture says, and he opens up a fountain of grace and mercy, and the nation of Israel is saved. And that's going to be what Terry's going to be talking about before summer. <laughs> Yes, sir. Blood and water. So you want to tell us the significance of blood and water? He's literally dead. The water, blood, is the picture of this. Is 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 the ransom? Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. There is no atonement except for blood. The life is in the bloods. All these Old Testament things perfectly elocuted and, and, uh, and, and satisfied blood and water. Man and the blood is the life. He's really dead. And that blood is the atoning work for our sins. Thank you for bringing that up. That means you're paying attention. Pierced his side. I got to. Re- I, I mean, I, I sort of cheated you on Zechariah. So everybody turn to Zechariah. It'll be a good workout for you. Zechariah. Remember, we did this, and I know you don't, but I'm gonna. I'm gonna read it. 
This is an amazing prophecy. 12.10, I, Zechariah, and I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and supplication. Then they will look on me, Jesus Christ, whom they pierced. Does that blow your mind? 500 years before the event, Jesus said, they're going to look on me whom they pierced. They didn't believe he even came as the Messiah. Jesus said, they're going to look on me whom they pierced. So 2,000 years later, the work of the cross is going to be effectual. It's going to change men's heart. He's going to pour out grace. And the nation of Israel is going to say, the Messiah's already come. And we killed him. And we said, let his blood be upon us and upon our children. And by golly, it was and has been. Right? So, pierced his side. Look at 13.6 while you're there in in Zechariah. I went over this. And one will say to him, what are these wounds between your arms? And he will answer, those with which I was wounded in the house of my friends. If anybody doesn't believe this is the unerrant word of God, you don't read it. It's there. Literally for you to see. 500 years between my arms by my friends. Huh? Piercing to the side. Buried in a rich man's tomb. Where do you see that? Well, we've read the story. I believe Val read it. That he was buried in Joseph of Arimathea's. He was a wealthy man. He had a tomb that nobody had ever uh, been used. Uh, it was unused. Uh, Joseph and Nicodemus were two believers in Jesus, but did it secretly by night. Uh, several places in John, which we've talked about. But uh, let's see that in Isaiah fulfilled completely. Isaiah 53, if you've got your finger there, which you don't have enough fingers, and I guarantee you you've lost that spot. But Isaiah 53, 53, 9. They made his, his grave with the wicked, but with the rich at his death. So he was buried in a rich man's tomb. Joseph was rich. He had this property. And so Jesus is buried in a rich man's tomb. And I could get into the symbolism of that, but I won't. And then we see that literally fulfilled. Uh, crucified between two evildoers. We know the story. There was a, uh, two thieves. One said, ah, ha, ha, let him die. The other thief said, hey, we're getting, we're suffering for what we did rightfully so, but this man has done nothing wrong. God gave him faith to believe that and understand that. And before he died, Jesus said, this day you will be with me in paradise. But, but, uh, buried, crucified between two evildoers, 5312, if you're still in, in, uh, In Isaiah, he was numbered with the transgressors. Literally fulfilled, he was numbered. He was literally between a lost man and a saved man, it turned out. And he's the intermediary. He's the reason one was saved and one wasn't. Beautiful picture there. Uh, We get into that too, but uh, I'm going to do this first part. Anyway... 
in the place of his people. Look at 53.12, while you're there. He has borne our sorrows. He's carried our, our sorrows. He's esteemed and stricken. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was on Him. And by His stripes, we are healed. All we have sheep like gone astray, we've turned everyone to His own way. And the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. So Jesus' death was substitutionary. It was planned. It was particular, and he came in the place of his people. And so that is a fulfillment of Scripture. He died for our iniquities, our transgressions. He drank the cup due us. He suffered as our representative and as our substitute. And he did that as a fulfillment on the cross. And lastly, he did it in obedience to the Father. Fulfillment of Scripture all over John, we've gone through it all. I don't, I don't want to go over all of it again, but it's found one particular place applied to Jesus in Psalm 40, verse 8. Uh, hard to find. Some controversy about whether or not this is what he's talking about. Uh, I delight to do your will Oh, my God, and your law is within my heart. Before that, it says, sin offering you didn't require. Verse 7, behold, I come in the scroll of the book. It is written of me, speaking of Jesus, why he came, ordained from foundation of the earth. In the scroll of the book, it is written of me. I delight to do your will, O God. Your law is within my heart. So Jesus fulfilled prophecy. In the obedience of the Father, the scroll was written about him. He made the sin offering once and for all for the salvation of his people. (sighs) Well done. I'm going to finish this next week. We're going to look at the seven sayings of Jesus on the cross. There will be no new notes, but I'm going to just expand upon this little really lousy outline. And uh, I'm quite sure it will take me the whole time to do this. There's no sense in rushing through this. These are very important. And there's eternal significance in every one of them. It's not just I thirst. There's importance to that, okay? We're going to talk about the water of life and all the things, the seven I am's of Scripture. It will all fit into your little minds, okay? My little mind. Comments or questions?